On today's episode, I interview the co-founder of Books, the seventh biggest company to be featured on the Shark Tank. That's a TV show. They are a nine-figure sustainable direct-to-consumer business serving the floral vertical. It's a huge episode and you don't want to miss this one. Do stay tuned. Retail and e-commerce have witnessed an unprecedented transformation in the last decade. The widespread adoption of mobile technology, social media, as well as the lowered cost of cloud-based technology have not only eroded the barriers to entry in retail, but it's also led to the rapid rise and dominance of digital native product brands that sell directly to their customers. On this podcast, you'll get the scoop on customer acquisition and retention strategies employed by high-growth digital native product brands. Not being afraid to spend because you know that customer is going to pay it back uh, three or four-fold. That's when you start to unlock channels in the way that they were meant to be used. And- Listen to interviews with experts at the forefront of technology and innovation in digital retail. Three years ago, they wouldn't have come to us because yeah, the macro trend of cloud, Wi-Fi, broadband availability, that was a real, that was a real problem. Hear first-hand stories from founders of innovative direct-to-consumer brands. Although I was thinking about the competition, I was more thinking about like, how do I just build a freaking successful business? We focus on driving as much traffic as possible, converting that traffic, uh, and then dumping money back into driving more traffic. These insights will help you consistently 2x growth in specific areas of your direct-to-consumer brand. This is the 2x e-commerce podcast, hosted by Kunle Campbell. Hello, welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast show. Now, the interview you're about to listen to is my interview with John Tabis. He's the founder and CEO of Books. Now, Books is probably the biggest store story, direct-to-consumer store story I've had on this show. They are doing well over nine figures in US dollars and um, their entire lifetime revenue is in excess of a billion dollars. They are a funded company with they've raised about 74 million or so to date. They've been in they've been in business for about eight years. They have 101 employees. And as I said earlier, they have a billion plus in lifetime revenue. They're actually featured on Shark Tank. And to date, they've been the seventh biggest company to be featured on Shark Tank and they didn't, you know, do get the deal done. But to date, that is the record that they've set. Now, there were many concepts which we went through, many, many parts we, we went through. One was omnichannel fluidity and the fact that they look at themselves as a brand that can transact in at any channel. But what you're about to listen to is me probing John about how he started up the idea, the ideation of books, how they got their first thousand customers to how they raised funds to how they got a further 10,000 customers to where they are today. 
they we touch about um, touch on topics such as sustainable farming, sustainable retail, essentially, and his views on direct to consumer retail. You know, he's achieved and accomplished quite a lot, and he is very team oriented. He also talks about how the the company has changed from a team perspective, from a line of management perspective, from the startup days to where they are now. If you want to get into the nuts and bolts of how a funded direct-to-consumer business works, then you have to listen to this. He, he really journals their zero to nine figure journey um, quite eloquently. There are many topics. We talk about acquisition. We talk about retention. We talk about their tech stack. It is a fully packed episode you don't want to miss. And while you're at it, you definitely want to Stay tuned to our sponsors. I always say this every week. It's Clavio and Rewind Backups. And if you just go to clavio.com forward slash 2x, you, they'll help. They'll sort you out, right? And if you go to Rewind.io and you mention 2x e-commerce, they'll take care of you. So just wanted to let you know one's email and the other is backups for Shopify and big commerce on to the next show i'll see you there listen to this one you know take notes it's a great episode cheers the 2x e-commerce podcast is brought to you by clavio the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and sms messaging whether you're launching your e-commerce business by taking your brand to the next level clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster that's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands like brooklyn non and choppies build your customer list send emails that pop and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance get started for free today visit clavio.com slash 2x to create your free account that is k-l-a-v-i-y-o.com slash 2x Let's take a quick break to talk about screwing up. Accidents happen. Perhaps you installed an app that messed up your theme or a CSV import completely messed up your product catalog. Common myth, cloud-based e-commerce platforms like Shopify and BigCommerce have automatic backup solutions you can use when something goes wrong with your store. This is simply untrue. They don't. Myth busted. So what do you do? You use Rewind. Rewind will protect Shopify and big commerce stores with automatic backups. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or collaborators gone bad. It's like having your very own magic undo button. Rewind is trusted by over 25,000 businesses from side hustles to the biggest retail brands you can think of. Gymshark, Movement Watches, and Pampers all use Rewind for automatic backups. So here's a deal for 2Xs. If you head over to rewind.io, which is R-E-W-I-N-D.io, install Rewind, you'll get to use it for free for seven days. 
If you reach out to the Rewind team and mention the 2X e-commerce podcast, then extend your seven-day trial for a full month for free. Enjoy peace of mind with Rewind Backups. Remember to head over to Rewind.io and don't forget to mention the 2X e-commerce podcast for a full month trial. Hi guys, welcome, welcome, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. And this is a podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail, right? Um, so if you're looking to, you know, grow metrics, you know, such as average order value, you're looking to grow metrics such as, um, you know, traffic and automate these sales, you're listening to the right show. Now, um, you know, I always promise you to, to get the very best guest on the show. And today... Yeah, these guys are phenomenal. I mean, the story of this particular entrepreneur um, is 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 phenomenal. It's, it's really really interesting. He goes by the name of John Tabis. He is the founder and CEO of um, a, a direct to consumer flower business called Books, short for Bouquet. Um, so Books. Um, he's now a startup investor and advisor because he's you know done tremendously well in this space um, where he's they're, they're well over you know um, they're, they're well over eight figures. Um, he is um, a keynote speaker and a joint professor. Um, what else? There, there, there's so many accolades here. You've been on Shark Tank. You have raised seventy four million dollars. He has an audience greater than four million people. Um, yeah, he's he's the Mac. He's he's, he's a man, you know. Um, right now, we're on on the focus of, of this podcast. Um, but without further ado, I'd like to welcome you, John. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Fantastic. And you're in TechStars too, right? Yeah, I'm a, I've been a mentor at TechStars for I think five years. Okay. 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 I probably haven't done you sufficient justice, but could you just give a, a, a brief background of, um, you know who you are, um, you know, what you do and, um, the brand books.com over to you. Sure. Yeah. So my career started out in strategy. I worked at Bain and company, um, yeah. and doing core, core growth strategy stuff. And then, uh, I knew I had the itch for storytelling and I, and I thought I could get that in advertising. So did a couple years of advertising, didn't quite scratch the itch as I wanted it to, I went to business school at UCLA Anderson uh, and then went to Disney where I was in the corporate strategy group where we essentially merged my worlds of consulting and storytelling um, for about seven years at the Walt Disney Company. So that was essentially internal consulting on strategy, consumer behavior mm -hmm. with all the different brands, ABC, Disney, ESPN, you, know, you name it. And after about seven years of that, I, I really wanted to run something. And, and very rightfully so, Disney wasn't giving me anything to run at mm -hmm. the time. And, uh, and so I found the world of startup. A, a friend of mine had started a company. Uh, I was pretty successful. I sort of started interviewing around. I took a job at ShoeDazzle.com, which was Kim Kardashian's yeah. subscription shoe service, which was sort of a rocket ship at the time. And, uh, and while there, started talking to my co-founder about, about floral and, and where he thought the farmer side of things could be improved. And I got some ideas around how, uh, how, we could make it better on the consumer and brand side of things based on my time at Disney, et cetera. And so we, we put our heads together and in late 2012 launched the Books company. It's now been close to eight years. Like you said, we raised $74 million. We're a team of 83 um, and we're a, you know, a sizable sort of contender brand here in the U.S. trying to take on you know, the, the larger established incumbents. Fantastic. That's a great intro. Lots of things to unpick there. 
Now, um, this is to the audience. Um, so how this is going to go is um, I want, you, you guys are quite a sizable company now, and I, I would love you to take us through your journey. I'm going to ask a few questions, and um, it's probably going to start from the beginning, and then we'll certainly move to certain summit points um, that were pivotal in the growth of books.com. And um, then we'll talk about now and you know what you think the future would look like in the midst of COVID, because I think COVID is going to be with us for a while um and then we'll, we'll 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 give it a wrap how does that sound sounds great let's do it okay brilliant okay so looking at the landscape you know back in i think it was 2012 um you know you founded books with with your co-founder um your co-founder oh uh, yeah so what was the landscape on how did you think um you were going to change the the floral you know um sector industry um because at the time um you know direct to consumer d2c was you know the, the idea of d2c today was different then um it's evolved you know um and you know lots of thinking and philosophies have actually changed in, in what you know d2c is today um so what do you think was convoluted in the system and how did you think you were going to affect change yeah you know what we saw as a big opportunity uh, and, and our inspiration came from this, this sort of two sides of the marketplace, the consumer and the producer. And in floral, based on my co-founder's experience, which was running a flower farm, he was actually okay. running a rose farm in Ecuador. And my experience as a shopper, what we saw was the two most important uh, parts of the value chain were the most unhappy with the way it was working. The, the farmers did not like that there was no transparency of sourcing, meaning that those that invested in sustainability and quality freshness and people were never recognized because there was no way to trace the flowers through the supply chain. You, couldn't, you can't go into a florist shop today and say, how were these grown? Are these grown sustainably? They would never know because there's all these layers. And so my co-founder was just frustrated with the way, and then they're also at the very end of the value chain, which means they get paid last and they get paid least. Mm. Um, it's a very commoditized product. And then on the consumer side, there are no real brands that stand out that define the category. You know, you think about in coffee, there's Starbucks, right? And in jewelry, there's Tiffany's. Or you can do this across any motorcycles, Harley Davidson, whatever. You can go across all these different categories and come up with a brand that, that, yeah. that stands for the category. And in floral, you couldn't do that. And the customer experience when I was shopping was very frustrating and very, it felt like, you know, two decades ago in terms of who it was built for. So we looked around the space and we thought, huh, if the, if the producer of the product and the consumer of the product are both equally upset about how this is working, what's going on in between that's really convoluting it, confusing it, making it painful? And when we did our research, we found that there were all these, these steps in between that caused just misaligned incentives, right? Mm -hmm. And the easiest example is if I'm a, a middle man in this industry and I have old flowers and they're going to die in two days, I'm incented to sell them to you because... I want to monetize them in some way. And if that trickles all the way down, that means the consumer is always getting the oldest flowers. Just, and it's no one's fault. It's just an economic incentive. It's how you're going to maximize profit. But that's actually impacting the customer's experience in a negative way. So our inspiration came from this really weird dichotomy of the most important parts of the value chain being sort of least appreciated. And so what we did was we said, let's look at that and build everything we possibly can such that it recognizes the farmer and the customer. And no one else matters. And so that's how we came up with our business model, which was direct to consumer from the farmer to the end customer, eliminate all the middle folks, ensure the highest quality for the best price and, uh, and be super transparent in the way that we market it. 
Okay, so very, very interesting, you know, um, perspective, you know, there. How did, so did you, how, first of all, you know, there's a lifespan, as you alluded to, to flowers. Um, and, you know, people ordered flowers, you know, um, in the States. And, you know, your, your co-founder was in Ecuador, um, you know, running this, um, you know, farm. How did you manage your supply chain challenges? Um, how did you get them quick to market? Did you have any, you know, um, warehousing initially or was it shipped directly from source from, from the farms, you know, to essentially to, to, to customers? Was it D2C in the pure sense of it or um, did you have any efficiencies in your supply chain? Yeah, so we, we, we started off with three farms that we worked with. My co-founder was general manager of one of the farms, so that was okay. an easy sell. Uh, and then the other two were, you know, neighboring farms that had relationships with them. And uh, we, we started off, it was pure direct ship dropped from the farm. Um, so it would be, get cut, it would get hydrated, it would get repaired, and it would get shipped straight from that farm. But setting up that international supply chain, which went from, you know, a local farmer to an airport, um, to the U.S. into Miami through customs, through from Miami out to some you know uh, you know distributor, whether it be UPS or FedEx or, or whatever it might be, uh, delivery partner. That that part was wildly complex. the The good thing was we had my co-founder who had, as part of his business, started selling directly to florists as a farmer. Okay. And so over a couple of years, he had sorted out not in exactly the same ways because we were doing consumer ready design bouquets and much smaller. He was shipping, you know, big pallets. We were okay. shipping individualized deliveries. So we had to make some changes, but there was a template. And what we essentially did was we piggybacked on that template that already existed. And mm -hmm. we were able to use our farm partners, their shipping partners at the beginning as a way just to get it off the ground. It wasn't ideal. We knew that it wasn't long-term, but it was enough to get us moving. And I think that's one of the most important things is often uh, people, especially perfectionists who, you know, some entrepreneurs are, are super type A perfectionists, some aren't. I, I am. A lot of times our desire to get it exactly right, exactly scalable, exactly perfect, means that we don't ever do anything. And what we did was we did it good enough for the stage we were in. And then we learned and we iterated, we got better and better. Now our supply chain is wildly complex. We work with 140 farms all around the world. Uh, we have a ton of technology that supports it and makes it work on time without a lot of, of manpower having, having to be present or, or focused on it. And so we're in a very different place now. But at the beginning, it was like, how do you solve the problem that's good enough for doing your first million dollars, right? And, uh, and, and when you're, you know, a million bucks, you're talking about roughly, you know, eight hundred, $900,000 a month. It's not that many packages on any given day. No. Uh, you, you can sort of hack your way, scrape your way, claw your way to a solution. It's not the solution, but a solution that gets you going on your journey. That makes sense. Makes sense. And um, what about um, capital, initial cap seed, you know, um, capital, you know, startup capital? Was it just out of pocket or did you um, have any angel rounds at the time? Yeah, so our, we had a friends and family round um, of $13,000, of which my co-founder and I each put in four. So we put in eight of it. So we raised 5000 total dollars from outside investors. Wow. My mom, my sister, uh, my, uh, a couple of my buddies from Bain and Company back in the day. And those, those guys have done great on their investment. <laughs> they were very small dollars. You know, it was just sort of enough to get incorporated, to buy some boxes, um, those types of things. Um, we, you know, we, we sort of begged and borrowed and everything short of, of stealing 
everything in the beginning. We had an intern who was building all of our technology for free. We hmm. said, we'll pay you when we can pay you. Um, we had, you know, my mother, who was 70 years old at the time, come out of, uh, of, uh, of, of retirement and mm. be our customer service representative mm. for free. She didn't, mm. you know, we had my sister who worked at, a, at an HR consultancy do our HR stuff for free because mm. we just didn't have any resources. I worked full-time for free. Everyone else worked sort of part-time around their day jobs yep. until we could get to a place where we had capital. And about 10 months after we launched, we closed a $1.7 million seed round from venture, venture capitalists, angel investors, et cetera. And then we went to like more of like a real company. But that first nine, 10 months was really bootstrapped. Yeah, you know, just scrappy, as, as scrappy as it gets. Okay, now uh, this is a very sort of um, general question, which is, you know, back in 2012, there was, you know, the boom in, in D2C. You know, there's um, Shoe Dazzle, as you alluded to, um, and there was this subscription economy. I think that's when Dollar Shave Club actually, you know, came into the, the market. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2020, are they still the verticals, retail verticals um, that have very convoluted um, supply chains that can be disrupted the same way you approach the floral, you know, um, vertical? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the opportunity is kind of limitless. You know, the, the one thing that you've seen in, in direct-to-consumer companies is that they take a lot of capital, right? We've raised $75 million. Um, some, some of these brands raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And, uh, and scale is hard, right? Scaling e-commerce is tough. Um, and so that has meant that, not, you, know, you know, other than Amazon, really, uh, online retail, you, you don't have dominant players sort of by vertical, right? Chewy is getting there, right? Um, after an acquisition. Um, Chewy is getting there, but there's still, it's such a massive space in pet food and and pet care that when you look at sort of total market share, it's not like they own the space. And so I think of it in a couple of ways. I think of it as, you know, supply chain disruption, but then matched with a segment and a value proposition. And you can kind of mix and match all those different things. You can have different supply chain hypotheses in a given space, Mm -hmm. right? So you have all the different verticals you could be in pet, fashion, beauty, flowers, whatever. Um, You have your your supply chain thesis, whatever it is, 3PL, uh, marketplace, drop ship, you know, all the different versions of that and combinations of that, omni-channel, whatever. Um, and then you have a segment. We're going to go after, you know, young women, older women, young men, older men, people that love goth, whatever, whatever your segment is. And, and so to me, if you're an entrepreneur that wants to build something in this space, if you take all those different combinations of variables, there's limitless options. Now, you know, goth, older women, pet food is probably a lot smaller than some other ones. But can you build a multi-million dollar business in that space? A hundred percent. If you're the one that owns that space, gets the brand messaging right, has a great product, et cetera, hundred percent. And so I think there's tons of opportunity, um, but it is a different world than it was then because back then, like no one really knew. It was it was wild, wild west. It was, oh, yeah. these could all be trillion dollar businesses or, you know, uh, these, these are the businesses that are going to kill Amazon in 2010, 11. That has not proven to be true. There aren't any trillion dollar businesses in this space. And Amazon is certainly not dead. But those are the types of conversations back then that were happening. So I think we're a lot more knowledgeable about, about, about how D2C can work, um, what to do, what not to do, where the pitfalls are. 
Um, and that it's and that it's frankly, it's just not super capital efficient. You know, in, in our case, our thesis was we don't need to buy a lot of inventory, so we don't need to raise a lot of money. We can do this on relatively small dollars. But then when you look at the technological needs for managing um, perishable supply chain, when you look at the, the high level of competition and fragmentation in floral and what you need for marketing, um, and when you look at just the competition for talent, all those things lead to you need money. Additional um, cost, yeah, yeah, something exactly. else to so, give, yeah. I think we've all learned a lot of things around how D2C works. I don't think it changes the opportunities. It just gives a different framing for what the opportunities really are. You know, Michael at Dollar Shave, I think they launched about a year and a half before Books did. And they, I mean, they absolutely crushed it. And I think especially in subscription commerce, there are so many niches where subscription can be a value add to the customer and a really profitable um, angle for, for you know, a, a seller. I think there's lots of opportunity for automating our lives. And I think in a, in a, you mentioned earlier the pandemic and, and sort of in a post-pandemic world, I think that only becomes more valuable. If you can use user experience design on the website, on the app, on the phone, and you can use automation to add value beyond just selling me something. Um, and, and, and you and I were talking earlier sort of offline around a, a company that used to be called Filter Easy um, that you subscribe to a, an air filter and it shows up, you know, once every six months to, to both give you the product, but also remind you that it's time to change your air filter. Yeah. That's so much better than having to try to remember and then go to the store and check out. It, it, it adds value beyond that. And I think subscription, because of the ease with which it occurs and how much value it adds, because you don't have to think about it. Um, real, and that's what we see with our subscription products. You know, we're making yeah. the customer's life easier. Making it easier. Subscribe to flower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes 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 a, a, a ton of sense. Okay, so <laughs> do you do you think? Uh, oh, let's 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 go back again. Um, let's go back to to twenty twelve. First thousand customers. Mm-hmm. What did it look like? What 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 the marketing looked like? You only had twelve thirteen grand in in capital. You had. You had energy. You had a lot of people with. You had a motivated workforce, um, both in Ecuador and locally. Um, an intern that was, you know, d- working for free essentially. Um, people with a lot of energy and um, people that had hope in in the brand. But how did you get your first thousand customers? Yeah, you know, I I, I, get, I get a lot of entrepreneurs that come to me to talk to me about raising money because we've been there very successful at it. Mm-hmm. And my first question is always, well, what do you need money for? And their answer is always to, to spend money on marketing because I don't have any sales. And I always push back really hard on those entrepreneurs. And, and, and my message is always this. If you're, if you're not getting sales naturally, if you're not organically driving traffic and growth and referrals and chatter and social, et cetera, you don't need money. You need two things. You need a story and you need to hustle that story. And that's it. Because if you don't have a great story, I don't care how much money you pile onto it. It's, it's not going to scale efficiently. And even if you, even if it would work and you would scale, you'd be a lot more efficient if you had a great story. So you should figure that out. And so at the beginning, what we had was a story. Um, and at, at the very beginning, we didn't have that story. We just had a business model. What was your and, story? Um, at the very beginning, when we were trying to figure it out, right, was we were talking about benefits of the model. Hey, sustainability, freshness, quality, value. And we weren't getting people excited about it. Um, this is pre-launch when I was just trying to test these hypotheses around it. And then 
right before a launch, we had a conversation one day and I was talking about my co-founder's farm where I was located. And it's located on this, this um, volcano range called Cayambe in Ecuador outside of Quito. And Cayambe is an active volcano range. It's erupted, I think, two or three times since, since we started the company. In this meeting, the, the, the person across the table who worked in advertising um, said to me, you know, you've been here a while and you've told me a lot of great things about your business, but, but that is absolutely and easily the coolest thing about your business is that the farm is located on a volcano. Mm. And it was a, it was sort of a light bulb moment where we thought, huh, like for us, that's just, we've been there a bunch of times. That's just where it is. But for somebody who didn't know about our business, it's super compelling. And so our story became, we drop ship flowers from an active volcano in South America to your loved one for $40 flat. Exact mm. same business, but with a completely different feeling now where people go, a volcano? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And that, that was our story. And then we just hustled it. The first month when we launched, I sent over 2,700 individual emails to every single email contact I had. I just went through, I mean, I, I was shameless. I sent emails to ex-girlfriends. <laughs> hey, Sarah, I'm making up the name. Hey, Sarah, I know that last time we were talking, you were crying, but you should buy flowers. And here's why, <laughs> from a volcano. It was, just pure, it was just pure hustle. And, 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 and that just expanded. It went from emailing people directly to, to posting on Facebook, to posting on LinkedIn, to emailing alumni lists. And we just sort of expanded from there. And I say this to, you know, at my, at my class at UCLA, I say it to any audience I can get to, at the beginning of e-commerce or really any journey from a digital perspective, you need a great story and you need to hustle the heck out of it. And if you do that, you'll, you'll get learnings to help you for later. Um, and it doesn't cost any money. It, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of people don't want to put forth that effort or they don't know how to do it. Maybe they're not a great storyteller. They don't have that talent in their organization. You have to hire that talent. You have to find that talent. You have to beg, borrow, almost steal that talent. You have to find a way to get someone who can help you tell that story in a way that becomes so darn compelling that everyone has to check it out. And in our first year, we got to a $2 million run rate on $100 a month of marketing spend all because we had a really great story. Um, okay. And then you have, to, you have to back that story up. You can't be like, hey, we have flowers from a volcano and then have someone show up with local flowers from the local flower shop. That is now not authentic to the story. Yeah. When our customers received their flowers, they would see the stamp from Ecuadorian customs. Oh, wow. And they would see that it actually came from, oh, you know, it would say Volcan Cayambe, right? Yeah. And and that, then people would go on, on Twitter and say, wait, Word of mouth. it's actually from the volcano, yeah. right? And it builds this story and this community. And that's how we got exponential growth in those. So, so, so essentially, you're trying to get people to talk about it. You know, the word of mouth, the, the, the storytelling element touches you emotionally, but it touches you so deeply that you become part of an experience that you are happy to share with other people. And that's how you kind of, you know, get the momentum going. That, that, that was... That's right. It, it, you yeah. become part of a tribe that all want to see it work because you help discover it very early. You align with the right. values of the company right. or it has impact on you or your community in a way. And right. so you create ambassadors and, and evangelists that are free. Yeah. 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 Something that is technically free storytelling. It doesn't have to cost any money if you can yeah. find the right person to help you tell the story. To, in the to right tell way. the story. Okay. Um, two questions. Double barrel question is, um, who was the right person that told the story um, for, for you initially? Obviously, you said the marketing exec discovered, um, you know, helped was like, well, you know, there was that aha moment where, where you know, um, it was like, Kayamba has to be it and, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then 
obviously you as a business, you, you, you talked about the fact that you have over hundred, you know, um, supplies, um, suppliers in your supply chain at the minute. It has changed. You're, 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 you, you, as a, you, you're, you've raised, uh, you know, uh, millions of dollars. It has changed. Um, so, so how's your story evolved over time? How do you still keep it, you know, going, keep it real, you know, yeah. in, in that sense um, to, to get, you know, people, very emotionally attached get that mind share really it's, it's all about mind share right um but from Absolutely. the heart from the heart right um so, yeah, so, so how'd you do that in the early days the storytelling was sort of a combination of myself and our creative director his name is dave plafchan who's who's now at a great brand called papa and barclays where he's doing you know storytelling around cbd and the and the healing uh properties of cbd but we uh we took that nugget right? And we built the narrative together. And he was the execution side of it. I was a lot of more of the strategy and, and sort of the messaging side of it. And we just put our heads together. We had a very similar sort of thought on what the aesthetic should be. Uh, we knew we had this great story in the sort of contender brand, the upstart paired with this idea of flowers from the volcano. Mm-hmm. And we, we infused that in everything we did. You know, when you came to the website, the first thing you saw was a big picture of the volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, we said volcano flowers right underneath it. We would produce TV spots that had, you know, lightning striking at the top of a volcano and say volcano flowers. Seriously, it was everywhere and everything we did. All of our emails referenced the, the, the volcano. And what was great about that was that captured imagination, which then led to other outlets. PR came along and said, hey, you know, Daily Candy featured us, Thrillist featured us, Oprah Magazine featured us, Shark Tank came calling all because everyone wanted to get engaged in this story that was super interesting and crazy. Wait, flowers from a volcano, how does that even make sense? And so he and I sort of put our heads together and executed with um, a great graphic designer named Mai Nakamura, who was on our team early as well, and, and really brought that to life, you know, online, in social media, and, uh, and, and, and beyond. Um, but the story had to evolve. You know, at the very beginning, the story of flowers from the volcano made sense because all of our farms were in that location. Now, 140 farms around the world, including the U.S., there's lots of places where we're growing flowers now that are not on a volcano. And so what we did at the beginning, the first evolution of that was we went from just Ecuador to Ecuador and Colombia, and then from Ecuador and Colombia to to Ecuador, Colombia, and the U.S., and then sort of global. And so each step along the way, we just told a different origin story. So we went from being all about volcano flowers to being about flowers from the volcanoes of Ecuador, the hills of Colombia, and the fields of the USA, right? All which evoke a certain emotion, which still yeah. tell a story about where it comes from. Um, but then our supply chain became more complex, where we started taking pieces from the volcano and merging it with pieces from the fields of, of California. And mm-hmm. that, that muddies the story, because now you just can't say, oh, it's from here. It's from actually multiple places. So then we started flipping to a conversation where we focused more on the sourcing uh, practices, right? What do all of our farms have in common? They're all certified sustainable. That means that a third party like Veriflora or, or Rainforest Alliance is saying, they meet a minimum set of standards that they're protecting the environment. They meet labor standards. Um, And then we also focus on the design that we do. Unlike most of our competitors, we design everything ourselves in-house and they're unique. You can't find them on 25 other websites. And so that, that, that origin story is still there, but instead of it being the whole story, it's now a piece of the puzzle with a couple other facets. But the core of it remains the same, which is we know where your flowers come from. We work directly with those farmers for the betterment of those farms and the environment. And, uh, and, and those origin stories are, are, 
are background, but they're not the foreground anymore. They're not the main storyline. They're more of, of, of setting in context. Mm. And so it's, it's had to evolve. You know, we're, we're now, you know, we announced it earlier this year. Uh, we, we launched, a, we announced a plan with this latest fundraise, which is $30 million. We, we announced in January to move into physical retail. Oh, well, if you're moving mm. into physical retail, the flowers are not coming from an Ecuadorian volcano directly. They will still be coming from that volcano and our other farms. So we can tell the story in the store about where they come from. Yeah. But now you're talking about people coming in for weddings and events and yeah. corporate accounts and, and, and a last minute gift to bring to a party yeah. post pandemic. Yeah. And so we've just had to evolve that story with each step and evolution of the business, which is really driven by what the customer wants. Uh, and I guess the advantage with direct, the exciting thing about direct to consumer, you know, um, commerce is that um, you have the opportunity to tell the story on your packaging continuously. So for, for a subscription, um, you know, commerce business like yours, um, people would be, with, with every package they get, you, you still have that opportunity to, to reinforce the sustainability, the, the origin, and, you know, all other aspects or branches of your, um, of your story on there, unlike if it was like a software or a more intangible product you're trying to sell. Right. Yeah. We have, we have ongoing touch points with our customers. They're primarily, you know, when you receive it and, and, and often the recipient is not the customer actually, right? We have two parties. We have the buyer okay. and the recipient because most people send. True, true, yeah. true. Um, yeah. Which is actually even better because then the recipient starts to use your, your service to send other people. So you get yeah. this sort of uh, multiple the variety. So do you have like a referral program in, in place now today um, where you, you kind of like an Uber referral program where you, 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 you get some sort of credit or you, you get free flowers if you were to um, refer, um, you know, a friend to, to, to books.com. Absolutely. Yeah. We've had, we've had those in place and they've, you know, the offers vary from time to time seasonally and, and year to year, but generally speaking, you know, you give, you give a friend X dollars or X percent off and then you get, you know, a similar thing. And I think that and email capture are sort of the two very early stage things that you have to have. Again, okay. you don't have a lot of capital unless you do, but if you don't have a lot of capital, grabbing an email address, having a drip that communicates your, your brand proposition, what makes you different, uh, discounts, et cetera, to a customer is a, is a set it and forget it thing that will drive revenue over time and then referral very similarly and make it super easy for folks to introduce those that they want to evangelize to, to your brand and incent them to do so. You ask them to evangelize, you give them a reason to do it. They're much more likely to do it than, than just on their own. Yeah. And so those programs have been in place since, you know, month two or three and have always been sort of a staple of what we do. It reminds, it reminds me of the, of, of Hotmail, you know, the virality of Hotmail only now this is a very tangible product rather than just uh, an email signature where it was like sent by Hotmail and then people were clicking on the sent by Hotmail to create Hotmail accounts. And then that's how you know, Hotmail got viral. Exactly. Um, yeah. But this time a physical product. Let's take this quick break to hear from our sponsors. It's safe to say that most of us have been doing more shopping online lately. And if you're an e-commerce brand, that means you might be seeing more first-time customers. But once they've made the first purchase, how do you keep them coming back again? That's what Klaviyo is for. Klaviyo is the ultimate email and SMS marketing platform for e-commerce brands. It gives you the tools to build your contact list, send memorable emails, 
automate key messages and more, way, way more. That's why over 30,000 e-commerce brands like Chobby's, Brooklyn Inn, and Living Proof use Klaviyo to build a loyal following. Strong customer relationships mean more repeat customers or sales, enthusiastic word of mouth, and less dependent on third-party ads. Whether you're launching a new business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo can help you get growing faster. It's free to get started. So visit klaviyo.com 2x to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash 2x. Okay, um, so let's swiftly move to um, key pivotal points. For me, um, having had a you know quick conversation with you prior to, to this interview, one pivotal moment was your Shark Tank um, feature. So you were founded in 2012, and in um, I think in late summer of 2013, you'd um, you'd recorded in um, an episode in Shark Tank in which you were rejected, um, which is a blessing. And then in April, which is spring of um, 2014, um, that aired. What was the impact? What was the journey to Shark Tank? Did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? Was it part of the whole plan? And um, how did it have any net impact um, on, on on books, on, on your story thus far? Yeah, so I, I anyone that can be lucky enough to get on Shark Tank should absolutely always go on Shark Tank. Shark Tank is one of the greatest things, especially a consumer business can possibly do. It is a uh, a, a reach vehicle for marketing. It is a, a brand stamp of authenticity and, and, and quality. Um, and it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving because there's reruns, there's press. Um, there's a lot of things that keep going. We're talking if, about it right now. Yeah. If you get an investment, you have access to the sharks. And, yeah. you know, while I was rejected the first time around, Robert Herjavec invested later. So now I have access to Robert. Um, so there's a lot of great things that come from shark tank. Our journey was, was interesting. Uh, an email came across my UCLA Anderson alumni list around Shark Tank looking for companies to apply. And I sort of shot an email to the producers kind of on a lark. I I wasn't necessarily wanting to go on the show. I had been a fan of it. I watched it, you know, religiously. Um, But I was nervous about going on because we had already raised money from venture capital and I couldn't really negotiate the price as much. And I didn't know if that would come across great. So I sort of shot them a note and, uh, and we started talking and, and they encouraged us to apply. And then we applied and, uh, you know, you have to go through the, the written application, the legal stuff, you have to do a video, all these types of things. And eventually we sort of made it through and they said, hey, we'd love for you to film. But I was very uncertain about it because, uh, you know, PR cuts two ways, right? It, you know, people say there's no such thing as bad PR, but for me personally, going on the show without an ability to negotiate a lot because my price for my equity was fixed because I already had a round done made me nervous that, and I'd seen it before on Shark Tank where the, the sharks might feel like I was just using it as a platform for, for publicity, which was not true. I genuinely wanted a shark to invest. It's just that I couldn't incent them via price. But I didn't know how that was going to be read. And so I was very nervous about it. So I actually put it off. Um, there was like, I think they, they filmed like three or four times in a given summer. And I was invited to the first one and I sort of demurred and demurred. And, and finally, they were like, look, there's one more session. If you're going to do this, you need to do it this session, yes or no. 
And, uh, and I finally decided yes. And the reason I decided yes was I felt like there was real downside risk, um, but the upside potential outweighed the downside risk. Um, and I also um, was sort of like, am I doing a disservice to our shareholders and to our company by not going on because it's such a great opportunity to introduce the world to this brand? And so went on. Um, what's, what's interesting about Shark Tank too is when you walk on and, and you start, you see the set, you see the sharks up there and they're filming. That's the first time you see any of it. You don't hang out with the sharks beforehand. You don't like hang out in the set. You walk in, the lights hit you and you start pitching. And so what you see on the show is, is a condensed down version, obviously, but it's you know seven to eight minutes of an hour and a half, two hour pitch, but it's really what happened. Um, it's not sort of a staged environment. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that part's really hard, but it had massive impact. We, you know, we filmed in the summer, like you said, we aired in April, right before Mother's Day where we were already going to be really slammed at the time we were a company of like six or seven people. We actually just had a little Venice bungalow rented where we were all sitting in the living room, watching this happen live on the East coast. And our numbers went through the roof and we sold hundreds of thousands of dollars of flowers in minutes. Minutes. Uh, Websites, the website traffic went up something like uh, on a percentage basis, like, tens of thousands of percentage points above what a normal traffic day would have been. It was Was your supply chain still Ecuador um, or had you sort of diversified to other locations from a, uh, from a sourcing standpoint? We had, we had gotten the North American farms on board. We only had a a couple. So I want to say we had two, I think at the time and, um, and they were relatively new. I think we had only launched them maybe three or four months before the episode aired and, um, and unfortunately, a lot of our Ecuadorian farms on the timing could no longer ship in time for Mother's Day. So a lot of the, the weight, the brunt fell on these North American farms and they were brand new for us. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, our technology systems and our processes, our team, we were not set up for that level of volume. It was hectic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a customer service group that was used to servicing, you know, 10 to maybe 50 emails a day. And we got thousands in hours. Just how does this work? What about this? Why is this sold out? Just basic questions like, how do I shop your website? Because we were so new that we just didn't have those things done. Now you go on our website, there's an FAQ and you can learn all the things very quickly and easily. And we have thousands of customer services representatives ready to help you. Back then we were so small and so scrappy. It was completely nuts. But again, you know, getting seven and a half million people to, to not only see your brand, but have a story told about it in a way that is deep and it's you know seven minutes long and have debate about it as a business draws people in in a way that you just can't buy. We, we, no matter how much money we spent, we could never recreate what that story was for the customers. And so that really, um, it, was a, it was a bellwether moment for the business for sure. And it wasn't, it wasn't even necessarily the sales. It was the validation that we were onto something that that yeah. a large number of people were excited and intrigued about what we were doing. Yeah, and then they took action, transactional action. And what better way to 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 show your vote of confidence in you know in, in a concept or an idea, you know, um, than we, with your we wallet? Failed, by the way, we failed a lot of those customers. I don't know the percentage, but yeah, we, we weren't ready. We couldn't pack that. Mo- Mother's Day was around the corner, wasn't it? It was um, exactly. a few so, days to. We learned, you know, now serving that number of customers, to be honest, we would not really bat an eye. Our entire organization would be like, oh, yeah, that, that's like last Wednesday, you know. Yeah. But at the time, for the scale and, and sort of level of 
unsophistication that we had in the business, it was a massive challenge. That was definitely one of those. Interesting. Pieces. I'm looking at your angel list um, and Crunchbase, um, you know, page. So, you know, obviously there's um, the, there's the, you know, $1.1 million you raised in April, 2013, you alluded to earlier. Um, was it October 20? Um, what there's, there's, there appears to be like an undisclosed amount in October, 2013. Um, did the Shark Tank feature accelerate or was it a catalyst to the next round of funding you got? Um, I mean, the yes and no in the sense that, you know, so we, we closed our series A in 2014, not that long after the Shark Tank appearance. Okay. And so we certainly got a nice boost um, but we were also already in discussions around that round before the the episode aired. So okay. I wouldn't say that we got the funding because of it, but it certainly gave a nice boost uh, to the business at a time when we were we were in those negotiations. Okay, and so it, it wasn't uh, directly cor- correlated, but it certainly had an impact. So um, question I have now is um, so your what you started in 2012, two years in, two years in, in 2014 as a business um, with, with $6 million, um, you know, dollars in, in your series A. How did things fundamentally change, you know, around you from a control perspective to a marketing perspective, to an operational perspective and to a team management perspective? What, what was the size of the business at the time in, in June, you know, post June 20, post series A, um, how did that, how did that infusion of, of cash, you know, um, change the momentum, um, all around? Yeah. I mean, it, it really, it was a big leap, you know, our, our series seed was a big leap too, but you know, $1.7 million is only going to get you so far. We, we, we still had to be very, conscientious about our budgeting, very small in terms of our team to get to where we needed to go. And so, uh, but $6 million, you know, sizable amount of money. We moved into a new headquarters. We went from a team of six to a team of 18, you know, pretty quickly. Um, we, uh, we, we, I don't know how much we increased our marketing, but it probably went up by 10x. You know, we had now all of a sudden resources to execute in a much more significant way. Um, and that led to just complexity, right? Um, managing a team of 18, very different than managing a team of six. Team of six was like all personal one-on-one relationships, no second level of management. Uh, we didn't have any other executives at the time. All of a sudden, you get a $6 million investment. We hired a COO. We brought in a director of marketing. Uh, they hired teams underneath them. You know, you build out a whole new, a whole new office. All these types of things lead to complexity and changes in the way that we operated. Um, all very exciting, all very interesting. And I think, um, but all very hard at the same time. You know, one of the things that I think is underappreciated or under talked about in scaling any business, but especially scaling an e-commerce business is there's building the business, which is what do you do? How do you do it for whom? And how do you get people to spend more and, and, and grow the business? But there's also building a company, which in and of itself is a totally separate challenge. You need to get a collection of individuals that work together well, that communicate, and do, get things done in an efficient manner. And that is way harder. And, and I came from a strategy background, so I didn't operate anything prior to launching Books. So I was always a consultant to the people that were doing. And uh, I can say now, like having been in this now for eight years, 
operators are, are magicians. Operators that execute well are, are, are amazing because it is so hard to just build a company and let alone the challenges of the business on top of that, which is a whole nother, a whole nother factor. So I think the, the dynamic was completely different. Um, learned a ton of lessons about people, process, technology, about, you know, moves to make, moves not to make, about hiring and culture. Um, and we've had, you know, just like every company, ebbs and flows where we, we've been always up and to the right, but it's been up and down and up and to the right. And um, those peaks are great and they're super fun. Shark Tank was a peak. Our, our $24 million Series C was a peak. Um, but then there's valleys as well. Yeah. And, um, and the, but the complexity of multi-layered management um, and, and I think it's an important question for anyone who's running a, call it a lifestyle business today, where maybe it's two or three people and they aspire to have 100, 500 people or whatever it might be. That's great. But understand the difference in, in like you said, control in, in work lifestyle and in execution that's required when you get that big, because it is very different, not necessarily better or worse, just a very different dynamic. And if an entrepreneur really loves, you know, hey, it's me and my my wife and two people and the quickness and the nimbleness that, that ebbs and, and, and sort of goes away as you scale because scale requires different processes, different ways of executing. Yeah. And, um, and so I think having a very clear understanding of that before you decide to make that decision is really important. Super. That, that's um, yeah, very, very super insightful, um, you know, um, perspective at, at that um, at that scale, especially when you talk about the fact that um, you are growing a company, you're organizing humans um, on the one hand, and at the same time, you have to manage the growth of um, and um, nurturing customers on the other hand, the, the actual business and bringing them together. Okay, so what... Um, how did you know marketing change? Um, what were your acquisition channels? You know, um, you know, prior to um, let's say Series C um, with twenty-four million dollars infusion, um, as compared to um, your Series A with the six million dollars infusion. What did it? What, what were your primary? Um, acquisition and um, your retention business. Um, okay, first of all, before I even get into the question, um, from a, um, what's a percentage of returning of subscription businesses or subscription customers, sorry, as compared to one-off customers? We don't, we don't share the, the percentages um, publicly, but we've always been a majority non-subscription business. So it's, okay. it's not most of our, most of our business has always been, you know, our, our, our we bring people in, we want to sell them uh, bouquets and then we hope to introduce them to that subscription option. As okay. you know, if they're a more regular buyer of flowers and they're going to send flowers six, seven times a year anyway, why okay. not subscribe? And, and and that's kind of been the thesis. So we're not a primary, primarily subscription business. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult selling subscriptions to people who are gifted, um, you know, items, unless if it's like a membership where if you're a member and you gift so many times, you know, in, in a year, then, um, we'll potentially give you a discount if, you know, that's your motivation, which not always is. Since that when you subscribe, you know, you subscribe to like a frequency, you say once a month or once every other week or whatever it might be. And we give you 30% off and free delivery on all of those, those events. However, frequently you set it, 
Uh, but at the same time, you can skip a month if you just don't need it. You can just say, I'm not going to send flowers this month. Um, or you can just have it like default to your own home and give yourself flowers 12 months a year as a default. But then six times a year, you say, I'm going to send a mom here, my sister here, my friend here, whatever it might be. And so it's kind of like that sort of club-like experience. And then it's super flexible. You can pause it, you can skip, whatever it might be. Um, but, uh, but, but my theory was, was never to go out and say, hey, we're a flower subscription company, come and subscribe. It was, we're a sustainable flower business, come and shop with us. And hey, here's a subscription product that will make your life better. It'll be cheaper, you'll save money, it'll be easier on top of, of that core offering. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Great stuff, great stuff. Okay, so back to my, my, my previous question, which is like, um, what the marketing look like um, with $24 million? Obviously the objectives in question, I'm going to, sorry, I have another question. Um, when a VC gives you money, right, um, do they expect you to spend it over a particular period of time? What's the expectation on the use, utility of money? Um, so let's talk about the $6 million you know, that was handed over to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in any round, right, you're, you're raising money for a purpose and there's, there's a certain set of things you want to invest in, whether it's people, technology, uh, geographic expansion, channel expansion, marketing, whatever it might be. And so you have a rough idea, you know, before you take the money on where you want to spend it. And, you know, at different, at different series, series, you know, seed, ABC, whatever, the use of proceeds is different. Right. And so in a series A, it may be, hey, just get some foundational stuff in, in, in place and increase your marketing budgets. Whereas maybe a ser- series C is like dump it all into marketing because you've figured out all the other stuff. And now it's just about scaling the business very quickly. And it can vary by, by business, by sector, et cetera. Um, so we certainly had a plan for what we wanted to accomplish in a given time frame. And what we really tried to get very explicit about is, hey, what are the milestones we want to get to for the next round? Or is, is there a next round? Or are we aiming for profitability? And each step along the way when we raise money, we've had that conversation with, within the team, my co-founder and I, with our leadership team and with our, our investors or board members, if there, there were any at the time. And so we, you know, we, we would set forth a, you know, a given run rate we wanted to achieve or a certain set of capabilities. Like you know, after the series uh, seed, it was like, okay, expand our supply chain from Ecuador and a couple farms in the U.S. to be much more global, much more um, uh, de-risk it, create more scalability, et cetera, et cetera. That was a, a key you know, primary milestone that we wanted to achieve. It might be a certain monthly revenue sales goal. It might be a certain level of contribution margin or profit or whatever it might be. And so we, we laid those things out. Uh, at, at, for us, again, I think it varies for every company. Series A was certainly um, an increase in our marketing spend, but there was also just a ton of just building that we had to do. We were, we were at, in our post-series seed, we were still very small. Again, we were like seven or eight people. Um, we, we got to call it 20-some uh, on the Series A money. So we wanted to build out the team because um, I was doing way too many things that I wasn't great at. We had too many people burning the midnight oil every single day, working crazy hours. And so we needed to get to a, a little bit more of a, uh, a, a solid foundation rather than all the scrambling that happens in early stage. We needed to invest in the technology to give our customers more flexibility, especially around subscriptions. And then we wanted to spend more money on marketing. Um, our marketing journey is one where essentially what we did was each step along the way at the very beginning, we had no money. So what did we do? We spent a little, like a tiny little bit of money on Facebook ads to do sweepstakes. Just, we just gave away flowers. 
Um, we uh, did a lot of content marketing for free. We just you know hired people to put out content on social media, um, and we uh, we did sort of free PR, meaning we were pitching ourselves to any outlet where we could get access to an editor or a writer. It was just very scrappy PR. That's sort of where we started. Um, the first channel we turned on was affiliate marketing, where we were sort of only paying if there was success. So it was a de-risked channel uh, because, you know, you put out a, a CPA, whatever it is, $10, $20, $50, whatever your, your category uh, demands, and you're going to pay $50 if someone sells something that costs $100, so you're profitable on that order every time. So affiliate's a nice less risky channel. Um, and then we moved into to search, you know, flowers in particular is a very intent driven category yeah. where you need it for a reason. It's my mom's birthday next week. I need flowers. Right. Um, unlike some other things like shoe shopping, where you might just be scrolling through Facebook, see an awesome pair of shoes you love, click on the ad and buy it. Mm -hmm. So very different, um, shopping patterns. So search is very important. In those earlier days, we had to be pretty call it small and careful just because we didn't have big dollars and we couldn't get into bidding wars against the big um, competitors. So we focused on branded stuff, you know, sort of protect our brand, own our keywords. It's one of the reasons why we named the company Books, by the way, mm. was that we trademarked the word, we owned it. So mm. where everyone else has flowers or blooms in their name, which from an SEO perspective and a brand recognition perspective is hard, everywhere you see the word book is us. Yeah. Um, and so there was a strategy to that as well, but SEM, became sort of our next core. And our, our first hired marketing was actually a great woman named Christy Kim, uh, super smart marketer, came in as a director of marketing, but came from a search engine marketing background. Okay. And that was, that was really a big focus at that time. Um, we actually dabbled in video and TV really early, um, not in terms of big spend, but producing the content and then leveraging it as best as we could. So um, mm. not like big media buys, but as an example, we um, worked with an ad agency here in town called Deutsch, where we, they gave us some sort of, not pro bono, but discounted work because they wanted to work with earlier stage companies. We created this amazing spot. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty hilarious. It's sort of the theme is for all those guys out there that screw up all the time, you should have books to sort of save the day. And mm -hmm. so it was like these great vignettes of like uh, a broken motorcycle sitting on the front lawn for months or, mm -hmm. you know, a, a grilled cheese sandwich made using like a curling iron. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we, we built a pyramid, a pyramid made out of beer cans <laughs> okay. in the middle of a living room. And like the, 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 the spouse comes home and like sees it as like, Oh my God. And, and we actually bought, we bought a Super Bowl spot, but we wow. bought a Super Bowl spot in one tiny little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. Like, a suburb of Erie, Pennsylvania, like when, not even what, Erie, Pennsylvania. When, when was this? When, when, when did you start to, when did you start to make a foray into TV? This is like 2014 after the series A. Okay. All right. But the production cost was, you know, not astronomical because we had an amazing partner who helped us a lot. Mm -hmm. and buying a single local cable spot during the Super Bowl was actually surprisingly cheap. I want to say we spent 10 to $15,000. Did you get returns from, from that? What was cool about it was not even the viewership in the market, although my cousin lived in that market and was like, hey, I saw you on the Super Bowl. I can't believe how much money you must have paid. And we were like, no. But what was cool about it was we could go around and say we had a Super Bowl spot. We'll sponsor app. Yeah. So it becomes a social media tool. It becomes a PR tool. It becomes yeah. a, uh, an email tool. And that, was, that in and of itself was worth way more than the viewership we even got by placing the ad. How, how effectively did you use the, the Super Bowl feature 
Yeah, I mean, that that in and of itself became a talking point, right, for a period of time. And that's sort of all the things we did back then, and, and we still do today to an extent, are designed around you know, multi-channel, multi, um, multi-time period use. Because if you produce a thing for a given time frame and that's all it's used for, it's, it's wasted resources. If you can produce a TV spot, a social media ad, a, photog- a, a photograph or whatever, but you can use it in lots of places over time. You can use it in social, on email, on site, at, at, for PR, whatever it might be. You're now leveraging the same fixed resources to get more and more variable use in, in terms of marketing. And so we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of people, but we have was this ingenuity and the scrappiness of the team to go out and produce those things. So as an example, um, I want to say in 2015, I think, we produced this great Christmas spot. And essentially what it was was music um, and a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. And on the chalkboard, you would see flowers come in and out, and the message on the chalkboard would change. Mm-hmm. We shot that once, um, and we put Christmas music, and we put like a sprig of like, you know, evergreen leaves. And then we did the, we did the exact same spot for Easter, it's just that instead of putting a sprig of, of green twigs in there, we put an Easter egg in there and okay. we changed what we wrote. It was one production. We could use it over multiple seasons and the variable cost on that was like 10, 15% more, but it was double the productivity. Mm-hmm. And those, any place where we could get a PR effort that would get us a celebrity tweet, but the celebrity tweet would then get us more social content, more proof, like more places to put it. And then that celebrity tweet could be used as fuel for pitching another celebrity or for pitching another PR yeah. opportunity. We just tried to leverage those things because we didn't have just, we just didn't have a lot of assets at our, you know, our disposal. And so yeah. that creativity almost becomes an asset because the lack of resources forces you to do more with less. Interesting. Interesting. Like a media pyramid, which builds up on top of. of Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the last three years um, so we're talking 2017 to 2020. Um, what, 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 what does marketing look like now you know, over the last three years? Or has it even substantially changed between um, 2017 and now? Yeah, you know, the, the dollars are certainly bigger. The, the, the channels have expanded dramatically. Not what, just what, what do the channels look like? Let, let's yeah, let's hear because, that. And by the way, not just because there's more dollars, but just because the world has changed, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when we launched the company, Snapchat didn't exist. TikTok certainly didn't exist. Um, Instagram, when we launched the company, didn't exist. So mm-hmm. there's just uh, all, an ever-expanding number of ways to reach customers. And so you constantly test and try to learn new ways to, to introduce um, customers to the brand. And then our business has also changed, right? Our subscription offerings have changed. Our price points have changed. Our our uh, depth and breadth of catalog has changed. Our pitch has changed. And so between the messaging and the channels, you look at you know marketing in 2020 versus marketing in 2017, you'd say they're night and day different. Um, but in some ways, they're also very much the same. You know, the big channels out there in the world are still the big channels. You know, Facebook, search, search engine marketing, um, and then for more sort of brand awareness stuff, TV, radio, podcast. I think podcast is probably the biggest difference is that in 2017, podcast wasn't close to as robust in terms of just the number of number of program, but also the, the tools to actually monetize it for the content producers and then to, to advertise on it as, a, as an advertiser. So you're actively um, sponsoring podcasts right now? We do, yeah. We, um, 
we had a pretty robust program for both Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we, we are on sort of evergreen on certain programs where we see really great returns. Um, but yeah, podcasts and radio is a, is a much bigger piece of what we do today than we did, you know, a couple years back. Um, TV has kind of come and gone depending on both leadership and the marketing department, what the market has looked like, what our budgets have looked like. Um, but it's been a staple at, you know, the Valentine's days and the mother's days, because you're looking for that big reach at those, you know, those big holidays. Um, and then, you know, the, the marketing messaging has changed too, as the company has evolved. You know, we, we were very heavy on, on Volcano in those early days. We were very, con- not controversial, but very um, direct in our uh, competitive messaging back in those days when we were smaller because we needed a way to get attention. Um, now it's more about storytelling about what we stand for and 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 what the benefits are of of shopping with us and and how we make it easier and, and, and a better value. Mm. Um, and then having some personality sprinkled in there. And so mm. the, the marketing tactics have changed, the budgets have changed, but the I think the the biggest difference is probably that the the mix has changed because of the both the proliferation and the sophistication of some of those channels changing over time. What do you think the impact of COVID is on marketing now in direct-to-consumer e-commerce? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, COVID, I think, I've seen, I've seen the gambit. I've seen COVID being an absolute destroyer of businesses where literally businesses are done overnight. I've seen businesses that are kind of not really sort of between the puts and the calls, they end up kind of where they were. There's not a net benefit or a net negative. And then there's some businesses where it's absolutely a, a helper, right? Um, I know just, uh, you know, uh, all of the food delivery businesses are absolutely crushing it in a COVID world. Um, all the liquor delivery businesses where people don't want to go out to a liquor store are crushing it. Um, you know, businesses that were, you know, digitally focused around selling for events and parties and weddings are really having a tough time because those things aren't happening. And so uh, there's, there's different dynamics for every business depending on uh, depending on what, where you stand in sort of that that pantheon. Um, I think that you know the key thing for any marketer is to adjust to those to the times and understand where they can play and where, maybe where they can't. Um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting about podcasts is that a lot of podcast listening used to happen during the commute. Mm-hmm. Well, people aren't going to the office. Podcast listenership is going to be down, but only certain types of podcasts. Other mm-hmm. types of podcasts or through the roof in listenership. And so, you know, I think what's really, what it puts on the marketer is the onus to go out and do the research and figure out what channels are, are going to win for your product category and which aren't. Mm. And double down on those places where you're seeing really great results, where it's working, where your message can really get through in a pandemic world and, and pull back on others. You know, we, we, we did a decent amount of outdoor advertising at the holidays. Mm. Um, what was interesting to see was, you know, a, a billboard, for example, the pricing obviously dropped pretty dramatically, uh, but sort of commensurate with the traffic. The traffic didn't go to zero. It mm. just went down a lot from what it was before. So you could actually get relatively good value in terms of reach because everyone pulled out of outdoor. Um, Facebook, you know, prices came down. Why? Well, because massive categories like travel, uh, uh, leisure, out. those things, they've, they've just stopped yeah. spending because they, they have no business. Well, that's an, an arbitrage opportunity to get cheaper clicks, whereas other businesses are, are thriving. And so, you know, I don't know that there's a, a for all businesses message. I think it's more about doing the research, understanding where things have changed for your category and, and you know, taking advantage where you can. I think that's the most concise, most accurate 
um, you know, insights in, in to that question. So I've asked that question a few times on the podcast and um, yeah, I'm impressed by that. Okay. Just being cognizant of your time, uh, because um, I really appreciate you, you know, sticking along to, to, till now. I have one final question, which is the evolution of your tech stack, um, your e-commerce platform, you know, um, all of the technology that um, that's running the business. You talked about the sophistication of um, of um, managing all your your managing your entire supply chain, given the fact that you know you're you, you have a perishable, in your words, supply chain um, or perishable product supply chain. Um, how how has it evolved over the last you know um, few years? You're eight years old, and um, at w- what pivotal moment um, did you think, oh my goodness, um, this is no longer going to hold us? We we need to switch, and we need to switch, and we need to switch. Where, where you know? Yeah, and that and that's happened across all of our technology needs over time. You know, what you build for two million dollars in revenue doesn't work for ten, which doesn't work for a hundred, and so you know, I think the biggest the biggest pivotal moment was probably in. 2017 to 18, where we we recognized that we needed to build a really sophisticated solution to manage this supply chain. You know, at the the level of complexity, because we have so many farms that we work with, the level of you know the no, just large number of nodes, and then any given node you have different SKUs, which have different ingredients, which can have different levels of inventory, right? Just that alone, and then you have different shipping speeds, different shipping costs, different distances, the customers. All of these variables are impacting any single one delivery. And now you're talking about doing hundreds of thousands of deliveries on any given day in a year. It got to a place where we knew we had to have a custom-built, in-house, sophisticated solution to manage all of that. And so there was, there was a moment where we said, do we need to build this or not, right? And what was clear to me was the way we had been doing it up to that point was not going to scale. It was just too manual, it was not smart enough, and it wasn't, the, the technology itself wasn't flexible enough to evolve with us as we grew. And so we knew it was going to be, it ended up being a, almost a full year effort uh, led by a great team that really, really busted their butts to build it. But now it's foundational to the way that our entire business works. And it reduces so much manual intervention, so much manual and tech time to try to just make everything work on a day-to-day basis that frees us up to focus on new things, bigger things. And so that's really the engine that makes our entire company work. That software is fully conceived, uh, architected, developed, and, 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 and created in-house. Um, and that's really the, the biggest piece of single IP that we have other than the brand in the organization. And it's really, the, like I said, the engine that, that makes it all work on a day-to-day basis. So you built it in-house. Do, do, do you still manage, how many, you know, um, how, how many members of staff actually manage um, the platform right now? Yeah, so we have, um, I mean, our, our technology team, including the product is probably 24, 25 people. So it's wow. a big chunk of, of our organization. Okay. Of, of, I think we're about 85 right now. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a really key piece of what we do and we'll, we'll continue mm-hmm. to invest in it because that, what we have now is the foundation for it. It will, it will continue to evolve. We'll build more capabilities. Uh, we'll build smartness and sort of um, uh, uh, its own set of rules and logic to run things on its own more and more. So we take more and more off of our supply chain team and more and more onto the tech platform because it just scales more efficiently. So again, that supply chain team can think more about how do I do 
more things that are value add to the customer, to the business. Um, and so it, it is certainly going to be an ever evolving piece of technology. Interesting. Interesting. What does your um, e-commerce platform look like? What, who, who, um, what plat- who manages your email? Um, any other major, major pillars um, from a tech stack standpoint? Yeah, so our, our, our web shop um, solution is a hyper-customized version of a platform called Work Area, which okay. is out of Philadelphia. Um, they build you know, e-commerce solutions for very large companies. Um, because our our use case is so unique. We wanted to get something that was pretty robust and, 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 but we had to customize the heck out of it because flowers is, is weird, right? It, unlike any other category, you have to actually have the product arrive on a specific date, right? You're ordering it for a birthday. You don't want it the day before the birthday. You don't want it the day after the birthday. Certainly. Um, if it's for Valentine's day, you don't want it the day before you don't want it the day after you want it on a specific date. Mm-hmm. Most e-commerce is just it'll deliver in a week or in two days or in one day, whatever that might be. Uh, for us, we have to really aim for a date. So there are certain requirements when you think about, you know, lead times and shipping times, et cetera, that we had to have um, in that web shop. And so, uh, and then our, um, our email uh, uh, ESP is, um, is sale through. Okay. We've used through now for five years, I think maybe. Um, and uh, it's been a, a great solution for us sort of throughout. So they've been really good partners for us. Um, and those are probably the the biggest pieces of of software that we have. Um, most of the rest of the stuff is, you know, our subscription engine was built 100% in-house. Um, so those are probably the big ones. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, we've come to the end of um, this conversation. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope you did. Um, right. Brilliant. Um, but before I let you go, I have what's called the evergreen well it's called a lightning round actually and um, i'm going to ask you four to six questions and if you could use a single sentence to answer them it'd be brill okay ready when you're okay all right um what advice would you give to your five year uh, to yourself five years ago um probably build for tomorrow more than today okay are you a morning person no <laughs> um What's your daily morning routine like? Um, gosh, I I struggle to get my eyes open. Um, my kids run in and jump on the bed and tackle us and 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 have a some sort of battle on top of the bed while we're trying to get the fog of sleep off. Um, I I haul myself um, downstairs into our garage, which is our gym now, and I get some kind of one hour workout in. I I battle my way through it most days. Um, I take a shower and I dive into the work day, you know, in there, if I'm on the exercise bike, I'm checking my emails for work, checking social, you know, reading the latest thing. Um, that's, that's generally my morning, but I'm, I, if I had it my way, I would wake up at 10 30 every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what two things can't you live without? Two things I can't live without. Um, I would say, oh man, this is a hard one. Ben and Jerry's ice cream for sure. Ooh, oh, man, I love Ben and Jerry's. I'm only allowing myself one one pint a week, and I'm like dying right now. Um, and uh, and the beach. The beach. South okay. Coast. What flavor of um, Ben and Jerry's would you as your fave? Brownie batter core. Okay. All right. Okay. Brownie yeah. batter is like it's the richest, chocolatiest thing in, in the world. It's so amazing. <laughs> sweet too. Okay. And by the way, pro tip: yeah. new microwave. Your Ben and Jerry's pint for like ten seconds. Okay, oh. <laughs> just soften it up. It changes it. Okay, 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, what's been your best mistake to date? By that time, I mean a setback that's given you the biggest feedback. Oh, great, great, great one. Um, you know, I actually I think the, the 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 technology one we talked about earlier sort of we had my 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 initial thesis on this was we weren't going to differentiate via tech. So we could not be cheap on it, but we didn't need to heavily invest in building technology. Um, and that really bit us in the butt, right? As we started to scale, we found that that just was the wrong decision. And so uh, I learned a lot about how tech can be an enabler or an inhibitor in, mm. in that process. And so, you know, it sort of goes back to my grow for build for tomorrow, not for today, uh, related to technology. But I look at technology very differently now, even in consumer-based or sort of non-tech businesses. You know, mm. tech is the great enabler if you build it the right way. Amazing, amazing. Um, finally, what book are you currently reading? Um, I'm actually reading no books right now. Um, awesome, in, in a pandemic world, I'm helping with the kids a lot um, and then, you know, the business a lot. So I'm actually, I have nothing that's active. The last book I read was Radical Candor. Okay. Um, yeah, probably about, it was like right as the pandemic was sort of starting and I thought I was going to have all this free time because I was going to be home a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it turned out that was the opposite of, of true. But, uh, but amazing book, great book on leadership. And um, I, I did actually did the audio book and it was, it was exceptional. Fantastic. We'll, we'll link to it in the audio notes. John Tabis, Mr. John Tabis, it's been an absolute pleasure um, knowing about what you're doing in books or what you've done in uh, books um, for the last eight years. Um, you have an incredible profile and I wish you the very best, you know, moving forward. Um, for everybody who's listening, um, just head over to books.com. Was it thebooks.com? T-H-E-B-O-U-Q-S.com to find out more about um, this amazing company. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great one. All right, cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.